We've got a great team of musicians. Uh, well, Mumford & Sons is, is one, of my, one of my favorites, personally, uh, one of my favorite bands right now. And, and I love that song. I have no idea what that song's about, but I love it. Uh, Patrick and I, and, and Pastor Chris as well, we kind of all sort of discussed it this week, trying to figure out, you know, what, what is he talking about? We, we have no idea, honestly. Uh, and yet, every time I listen to it, I, I'm just sort of sucked in by this hopeful sense of longing in the midst of bleak reality. I love that, that refrain, I will wait, I will wait for you. And he says, so tame my flesh and fix my eyes, a tethered mind freed from the lies, and I'll kneel down and wait for now. What is he waiting for? I mean, I'm especially drawn in because of, because of what I know about this band, in particular of, of their leader, uh, Marcus Mumford of, of Mumford & Sons. Uh, Marcus grew up as a pastor's kid. Uh, his parents uh, planted the first vineyard church in the UK. Um, he's 25 years old. He's the, the third one from the, from the left there. Um, he's 25, but he has since he's, he's left his faith. Um, he, he very clearly has made a break from his, his Christian heritage, and yet he continues to write these, these brooding spiritual themes. I mean, if, if some of you, if, if you've listened to some of his songs, some of them come out almost as, as angry prayers, occasionally even with rather explicit language. I'm drawn in by their, their, their longing for something, and I'm often, when I listen to their music, I'm left curious and spiritually hungry myself. I will wait. I mean, I have no idea what Marcus is waiting for. But it doesn't really matter, honestly. I mean, the beauty of a, of a song like that and sort of the passion of that question is it doesn't really matter what he's waiting for because all of us are waiting for something. I mean, whether, whether that's your first time hearing that song, you've heard it a hundred times, It doesn't matter. We all know that feeling deep within us. I will wait. And I don't don't just mean waiting to unwrap the presents, quickly piling up under the Christmas tree. So often our waiting is in the very hardest sense of the word. I mean, some of us are waiting for test results, waiting to feel healthy again. Some of you are waiting to to get pregnant, waiting to to find a spouse. Some of us are are waiting for that relationship to to finally heal or or waiting waiting to be done with that that same ugly temptation. Some of us are waiting to finally feel a little bit less grief after the loss of a loved one or just waiting to feel happy again. Every one of us is waiting for the brokenness to be no more. The question isn't whether or not you're waiting. Of course you're waiting. The question is, will we wait forever? Because it feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? But Christmas means we will not wait forever. You will not wait forever. And we see that this morning as we, as we continue our Advent series in Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and turn to this incredible chapter. Romans 8 it's in the New Testament. Last week, if you're here with us, we've been in Romans 8 now, this is our third week. Uh, Last week, we said that Christmas means slaves become sons, that we are heirs of God, that we have all the privileges and joys of being children in the greatest family, with the greatest father. 
But heirs don't get everything right now, right? No, heirs have to wait. And in a world like ours, our waiting so often comes with groaning. Let me read all of our text for this morning. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. Here's what Paul says as he continues this sort of fleshing out of the story behind the story of Christmas. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. With all of our waiting comes a whole lot of groaning, doubt, heartache, loneliness, fear. We groan and we groan a lot. And many of us, we know this so intimately. Whatever sort of struggle you're dealing with or or issues that you you bring with you as you come here, the, the heartache, the heaviness, we know the groaning. And so as we look at this text, this hopeful text, we want to try to answer three questions. Why do we groan? What will replace the groaning? And how do we live right now between groaning and glory? So first, why do we groan? It's a pretty important place to start. And and the answer that we have is, is fairly full. In fact, I think there are five answers that we need to quickly address as we think about that question. Why do we groan? Well, the first thing that jumps off of that text from Romans chapter 8, to me at least, is that we groan because everything groans. That's what Paul is saying. Even creation itself around us, even the physical world, the dirts and the plants and the trees, everything groans. Everyone and everything groans because everyone and everything waits. I mean, just look at our world, right? Look at the ocean. I mean, clearly made with, with such incredible beauty, but it can quickly turn into a hurricane. It groans for more. Or, or think about, you know, a beautiful mountain range, right? So majestic, so gorgeous, and yet we know that some mountains are volcanoes. Groaning for more. Or a beautiful forest. I just sort of want to go hiking in those woods, and yet all too often, right, we've seen this over and over recently, we see fires ravaging these places. Creation groans. And even in, even in our own physical bodies, right? I mean, here's a picture of a healthy human cell, exquisite, and yet a cell with cancer. Our bodies groan. 
mean, even, even our bodies, not just our world, but we ourselves, and, and we know that, right? That's, that's got to be the most obvious of, of all of this. I mean, I know I'm still a fairly young guy, 33, um, but it seems like with every year that passes, I've grown just a little bit more. I mean, right? I mean, just a little bit more and a little bit more, and some of the easy things that used to be easy are now just a little bit more exhausting. Our body's grown, if I, and if I get sick, I'm a big baby, and we know this, right? I mean, you stub your toe, you get a headache, or, or worse, you get desperately ill, and we groan. Everything within us groans in those moments. And if our bodies groan, and if the physical world around us groans, then we need to expect to groan. We need to expect to wait. I mean, if even the dirt feels the pain of this broken world in ways we can't even begin to understand, then of course we're going to feel it. I mean, one of the things that probably bothers me most is that when when well-meaning Christians say something like, if you just have enough faith, then God will fix your problems. You'll get healthy again, your marriage will be fine, your kids will turn out okay, you'll make enough money and you'll all live happily ever after. But Paul is writing to people who have experienced the adoption of sons and daughters into the family of God, people with faith, people who he says have the Spirit, and yet he says groaning is just a part of this world. We all groan. Everything groans. Well, that's the first reason. The second reason that we groan is because we all know better. We groan because we know better. I mean, just think about this for a second. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we all say that pain is simply a part of the human experience? I mean, we, we'd all say that, right? I mean, nobody escapes it. It's, it's one of the few universals across all humanity, this sense of pain. And yet, if the pain belongs, why do we call it pain? Why do we know that tragedy is tragedy if it belongs? Have you ever thought about that? I think it's because we know better. We groan because we know this garbage does not belong in this world. And so when a prominent person in our city murders his girlfriend and then takes his own life, right? We know that that's tragedy. You don't have to be a Chiefs fan, right, to figure that out. Or or when there's a hurricane, right, Sandy, 1,200 miles away from here. Why do we care? It's 1,200 miles away. Because we know we know that it doesn't belong. We know the tragedy that, that, that is in our hearts ache because we long for more. It's a consequence of living in a broken world. I mean, why? Why do we feel it? I mean, if a fish doesn't know that it's wet, right? All it knows is water. That's, that's, it can't even imagine another existence. And yet we swim in a world of groaning and we know it. And we hate it. We know better. We know we were made for more than this. I mean, why do death and pain make us groan if death and pain is the one thing every one of us can count on? Because we know better. Why else would we complain about things? When you complain, essentially you're saying that things are not the way they should be. That means they should be some other way, right? We, we know better. I don't, I don't care what you believe 
or what your background is, we all, every one of us, we long for Eden. We long to go back to the garden, to live in the perfect place that God made. We know it. We groan because we know better. But still, why do we groan? I mean, if we were created for more, how did it all fall apart? This might be the most obvious part of the story for, for some of us, but it's essentially because we broke the world, right? Uh, we rebelled against our Creator, and this is the mess that we're left with as a result of our sins. The, the, the tragedy that we see around is, is the ongoing consequence of our choice to rebel against God in the Garden of Eden. We broke it. And, and if we think we get upset about the pain, right, and the groaning in our world, how must God feel, right? Because we're the ones who wrecked everything he made, and we feel it around us. And really, if you think about it, right, I mean, think about what Paul is saying here, that the earth, the physical world itself groans. I mean, you kind of got to feel bad for the physical world, right? What, what did dirt ever do, Right? I mean, we're the ones who sinned, right? And yet, it feels the constant, what, the birds and the trees and the animals and the plants and the hills and the mountains, we're the ones who, who led them into this mess. And yet, we all suffer together. But still, why? We're still not really getting at it yet. I mean, that's, that's another reason, but why, right? I mean, you ever think about this? Why, why did God curse these inanimate things when we're the ones who sinned, Right? I mean, the curses in Genesis 3 doesn't curse humanity, he curses creation. Why? We're the ones who rebelled. To remind us. That's why. Every hurricane, every disease, every deformity and disability, every horror in our world ought to cause us to say, my sin is that bad. Why do we groan? We groan because my sin is that bad. My sin, our sin, caused this mess. Now, now listen here for a second. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that every tragedy, every bad thing that happens is a direct result of, of your sin or my sin. Like you do one bad thing and, you know, this tragedy happens. You know, it'd be like, like saying that, you know, Sandy hit New York because of all the sinners that live in New York. Okay? That's, that's not what we're saying. We don't, we don't know, we don't understand how God's judgment works and how God relates with that. We know, right, from week one of Romans 8 that there's no condemnation left for those who follow Jesus. Okay? We know that. Um, and so that's, that's not what I'm saying. And yet there is a sense in which we can say if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, if we hadn't sinned, if we hadn't chose to rebel, then we wouldn't live in a world in which things like Hurricane Sandy would happen. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be a part of this world. Every tragedy is a result of our sin. And so it ought to remind us of how bad sin is. Because really, if, if we're honest, right, we don't take our sins all that seriously, do we? I mean, I, I know I don't half the time, and, and I'm sure many of you don't. We, it's, just, it's just a little selfishness, a little, little lust, a little pride, a little greed, and I'm not, I'm not nearly as bad as that guy. I mean, that's, that's how we typically approach our sins. But one sin, think about this, only one catapulted our world into a place of cataclysmic decay. And so that, that means that if you are the only person on planet Earth, God only made you. 
You're the only one. That one little sin that you're thinking of, that one little insignificant piece of rebellion, that one little sin in your life would be enough to push this world into a place where children die of cancer, where people get Alzheimer's, where entire towns are wiped out by tornadoes. Your one little sin, my one little indiscretion would cause this world to enter, become a place where slavery happens and rape and murder and children are molested, where we have words. I mean, if you think about this, that we have words in the English language for Holocaust and genocide and starvation. None of those would exist if we hadn't rebelled. And so even my one little tiny act of defiance against God would push this world into that kind of mess. Our world is falling apart to remind us how bad our sin is. Because we're horrified when tragedy happens, aren't we? We're shocked and appalled at the the headlines we see in the news, but it is our sin that caused that tragedy, and yet we approach our sin so casually. C.S. Lewis writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Our rebellion against God makes planet Earth groan. It seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? But if it gets our attention, we might actually see how desperate we really are. I mean, are, are you following this? This is, this is an important one for us to grab. I mean, why we, we experience this? Why we, why we groan? I mean, this means that after every natural disaster, every terrible news headline, every, every bit of personal tragedy, or the most horrible things that you can imagine, after every one of them, we should say, my sin is that bad. Because that's why it exists. And if it's that bad, if my sin is that ugly, that abhorrent in the eyes of a perfect God, then A, I need a Savior really, really bad. And B, if my sin's that bad, I should probably take it a little bit more seriously. So why do we groan? We groan because everything groans. We groan because we know better. We groan because we broke the world. And we groan because my sin is that ugly. And finally, one more reason here. We groan because we're not there yet. I mean, at this point, it feels like we might just groan forever. And really, truly, apart from Christ, you will groan forever. I mean, if our sin is really that bad, then hell really does actually make sense. It seems like the best we deserve. And yet God sent his son, born in a manger, right? We're celebrating that this month and really all the time. Uh, Died on a cross to take the the punishment for the wrath of, of God against my sin, rose again so that we could be forgiven and restored, that we could have life. And so we could say with Pastor Chris, right, two weeks ago in Romans 8, that Christmas means there is no condemnation. And last week, Christmas means slaves become sons. And if those things are true of us, then we can say and proclaim, even in the midst of the most ugly situation, the most difficult world in which we could possibly imagine, we can say Christmas means we will 
will not wait forever. We will not groan forever. We're just not there yet. And so with the psalmist that we heard this morning, Psalm 13, we cry out, how long? How long, Lord? And anybody else tired of waiting? Well, Paul says that we will groan until our adoption is complete. It's in, in verse 23. He says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, if you were here last week, you might be thinking, hey, wait a second, come on. You might feel a little bit ripped off, right? Nathan, didn't you say that we're already adopted, that we, that we have this reality? Well, yes, I did say that. That's what Paul said in the, in the passage that was previous. And yet, and yet we wait, Paul says. The, the longing there, it's not fulfilled yet. This is, this is what theologians often refer to sort of as the already not yet of redemption, that we are already saved, we are already sons and daughters in this great family, and yet not yet fully. We don't, we don't experience all the joys of it fully. And so we wait. I often think of it as sort of the difference between D-Day and VE Day in World War II. Um, D-Day, you know, was the, the massive invasion on Normandy, and any historian will tell you that the, the war was over on D-Day. The Nazis had no hope at that point. There's no chance of, of victory for them. And yet the war raged on for another 11 months until VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. 11 months the fighting continued. That's, that's us. I mean, that's, that's already not yet. The war is over. It, it, it has been won when, when Jesus defeated death and sin on the cross through his death and his resurrection the war is over. The darkness has no hope of winning. And yet we all know that the struggle continues. We know that we continue to wait for our adoption to be complete. When that happens, Paul says that even creation even the physical world will stop groaning. I mean, it's such an amazing way that Paul is talking about our world, isn't it? This, this groaning, waiting, all of this, that, that even inanimate objects. I mean, in verse, back in verse 19, right, he said, For the creation waits with eager longing. Same, same phrase that he used for us. Waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then, then in verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And what are, what are the trees and the hills and the plants and animals? What are they waiting for? They're waiting for us to lead them out. We led them into this mess because of our sin. And in Christ, we will lead the created world out because of our redemption. That's, that's what Paul is saying. That everything around us, every single thing in creation holds its breath, sits on the edge of its seat, just waiting for us who are redeemed to lead them out of this mess. It's an amazing image. Why do we groan? Well, lots of reasons, right? 
But it's important for us to ask, what's going to replace the groaning? If we're saying we're not going to wait forever, we won't groan forever, so what's, what's next? We follow Christ. Creation follows us, but where are we all going? Well, Paul says, glory. And then he goes on, and he really describes what that looks like, that our world will be redeemed. Plants and animals and oceans and dirt will be redeemed, made new. It says in in verse 23 that our bodies will be redeemed. Here, Paul is talking about the new creation. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth yet to come. I mean, when we, when we think of the afterlife, right, the final resting place for those who believe, so often we, we picture this, this immaterial, vague existence, right, that we're just sort of bodiless spirits floating around with clouds and, and harps, and, you know, most of us imagine it's just going to be one long church service, right, which even right now I can tell you're really excited about, right? That's what you want, right? Just for, forever. That's, that's not what this book teaches, anything about that. In places like Isaiah and Revelation, here in Romans and and Colossians, elsewhere, it talks about what God is doing, that he is remaking this world, that he will make it new and good and beautiful once more, that he's giving us a kind of garden to return to, that he's going to take our world, groaning for freedom, and make it free. All that is broken and ugly will be made right. Uh, The beautiful will become more beautiful. I mean, we think the mountains are beautiful now, right? Just you wait. We We don't know all that is in store for us. God will renew planet Earth. He made it, right? The garden was his idea. Physicality was his idea that we have physical bodies, that we live in a physical existence. All that was his idea, and he declared it good. Creation matters. Our care of creation matters because God will redeem this broken world. And his renewed creation will serve as the playground for the children of God. And really, we're going to sing about this in in just a few moments. I mean, one of our favorite Christmas carols, right, is Joy to the World. It's one that we're often drawn to as a people. We we hear it, we sing it often. But, But typically, we think of it as, you know, Jesus' birth. That, that, that's what it's about, right? That's why we sing it at Christmas. But that's not why Isaac Watts wrote it. He wrote it thinking about Jesus' second advent, when Jesus would, would return, not as a, as a baby born in a manger, but as a reigning king, and that he would make this world right. And, and listen to one of the verses that he, he writes. He, said, he says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Thorns is part of the curse. He comes to make his blessings flow, Far as the curse is found. And how far is the curse found? Everywhere. You can't escape it. We see it everywhere. And so how far will his redemption go? It will cover everything. Earth remade. And and new bodies for us. I mean, bodies that, that don't wear out don't cause so much pain and frustration, but we will have physical bodies. Bodies that are similar to this and yet so much better. Jesus Christ, right? He rose again from the grave bodily. 
It wasn't a, it wasn't a spiritual resurrection. It was with his physical body. And in Scripture, it says that, that Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. That means essentially what, what God did with Jesus, God is going to do with us. Resurrection. But also that what, what God does with us, he's going to do with all of created reality. That all of us wait for resurrection. Everything. And the next life, in ways we can't even begin to imagine or grasp, the next life is going to be somehow like this one. Minus the pain. Minus the groaning, the waiting, the suffering. Minus the, the sin and selfishness and temptation and loneliness. I mean, we have yet to live. In the next life, we will live and love and laugh and play and work, and we will know our God, for God himself will make his home here with us. I mean, many of us, we don't really look forward to the next life. I mean, if we're honest. But that's often because all we can imagine is this this sort of vague, bodiless existence that's completely disconnected from anything we understand about reality. But that's that's not what Scripture teaches. That's not what it promises. Instead, we we are shown a world made new where Jesus himself will live with us. Thinking about it in those terms, that excites me. So what will replace the groaning? Glory. I love the metaphor that Paul uses in verse 22. Here's what he says. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's a pretty powerful image, right? Think about that. I mean, ladies, anything much worse, right, than childbirth? I can, I can remember when, when David and Eden were born. I mean, the agony, right? And I just stood there, right? It was pretty easy for me. And, and yet, this, this brutality, I mean, it's just an, it's an amazing situation. The agony of it. The pain. Is there, is there anything worse? Anybody here think it's worth it? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah, a few of you? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? Because we keep making babies, right? And they're everywhere. Especially around here, it seems like. Of course we think it's worth it. And the moment when we, when Kelly and I, when we saw our kids, we saw David and Edom, and she would, she would tell you this as well, that, it, you know, in a millisecond, the agony was replaced with delight. I mean, the, the pain was, was forgotten, and, and all of a sudden there was this incredible joy that here, here we have what we've been hoping for, waiting for. That's what Paul is saying is going to happen with all of reality. That we ourselves as individuals, as a people, as a community, that that our entire world and planet, all of created order, that we are in the very worst, in the midst, right now, in the midst of the very worst throes of labor. No epidural back then, right? Uh, The pain and the agony, we feel it. But he's saying that the moment, the moment new creation is born, the pain will be forgotten be overshadowed with absolute joy and delight. I mean, do you remember what Paul said at the very start of this passage? We just sort of read over it. He says that in verse 18, I mean, this is one of the most shocking verses, I think, in my, in my opinion, ever written, okay? In fact, if you don't believe, verse 18 almost just sounds ludicrous. 
But here's what Paul says. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Did you hear that? The sufferings of this present world, all of the groanings, all the, the pain, it's not even worth comparing to the glory that is yet to come. Disease, death, loneliness, child abuse, infertility, cancer, selfishness, greed, pride, not even worth comparing. I mean, just, just imagine taking all of the pain, everything you've ever experienced personally, everything you've seen in your family and friends, all of the, the agony that you read in the news headlines, putting all of it for the entire world together, add all of the temptation, all of the, the shame, all of the, the brokenness that we have, put it in one huge massive pile of brutal agony and shame. Not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. And don't think for a moment that that Paul is making light of our trials. I mean, this book takes our pain very seriously. Only we have a God who actually entered our pain. Of all the religions in the world, our God knows pain. He's not making light of it. He's just saying that, yeah, our pain is real. It hurts us. But when we compare it to what is yet to come, we have no idea. We can't even imagine. It's shocking, isn't it? And I guess we could say, you know, maybe, I guess Paul just had a really easy life, right? He was able to say that. He didn't know, he didn't know the pain. He didn't know what I experienced. But if you say that, you don't know Paul very well, right? Because here's what he says in, in Corinthians he had plenty to groan about. He said, five times I received the, at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's, that's beating, being whipped. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivals, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And don't forget, Paul was murdered for following Jesus. Not even worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. We will not wait forever, but even the waiting will be worth it. Well, how do we do it? It's hard, it's hard to wait especially when we know the groanings that we experience, the brutalities that we suffer. How do we do this? How do we live between groaning and glory? Well, Paul just sort of quickly alludes to it in verse 24 here, and he'll, he'll flesh this out even in the coming weeks together. But I love what he says. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? I mean, essentially what Paul is saying there. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to question, we're going to doubt, we're going to struggle with this because we can't see it. That's what hope is. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait with hope and we wait with patience even while we groan. Wait with hope, he says. Hope means confidence. 
It means anticipation. It means that we, we keep this reality, this future reality, on the forefront of our minds in everything that we do. It means, hope means caring for the world that God will redeem. It means doing our work now with joy and and diligence, faithfulness, knowing that it matters. Hope means everything matters. Biblical hope is very different than the hope that we often talk about together. You know, in casual conversation, we could say something like, I hope I win a million dollars, right? That's a little more than a wish, right? And a doubtful one at that. But here's what J.I. Packer writes as he sort of defines what Christian hope is. He says, Optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. And if we wait with hope, then surely we can wait with patience. More literally, the, the language that Paul uses there at the end is, is that of patient endurance. Not just sort of a casual patience. It's a patience that takes work. Because the groaning is going to assault us. Doubt and fear and loneliness and pain is going to attack our souls. And yet we remember faithfully that it's not even worth comparing. Christmas means we will not wait forever. And I realize that we all, we all hear a phrase like that or a sermon like this or a text like this very differently because we all carry different, different wounds, different baggage, different struggles. And one of the incredible privileges of being a pastor, sometimes we'll sit and just marvel at this, is that we get brought into some of the ugliest things that people are dealing with. It's hard, it's heavy, but it's beautiful because we can bring hope and peace through Christ. And so as a result, I know what some of you are struggling with. I know that as you hear this, the wounds go so deep, and yet together we can say aloud with confidence, right, with joy, the best is yet to come. For God himself entered our groaning world. He knows. Only our God has entered the brokenness and suffered along with us. He knows, and he did something about it. And because of what Jesus Christ, our Savior, has done, we can say with great confidence, the best is yet to come. We will not, you will not wait forever. Let's pray. Jesus, We are not very good at waiting. Especially when the groaning around us and within us is just so overwhelming at times. As we experience loss and disappointment, frustration, God, the the end, the list of our struggles has no end. And there are times when it feels like we will groan forever. 
Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would remind us constantly that the best is yet to come. That the things that we experience now aren't even worth comparing. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful as we seek you. And that together we would rejoice in your goodness and your love. And we pray that in the midst of the groaning, as we live desperately between groaning and glory, God, we pray that you would hold us now. That you would remind us of your love. That even when we cannot see the light because of all the darkness around us, help us to hold on to what we believe. Keep us close to you, Lord Jesus, and close to one another. Sustain us, we pray.